Hey everyone, I'm your host, Kayla, and it's just me today. Well, kind of. (laughs) But you are listening to True Crime Exposed. show. If you listened to last week's episode, you will know that I was supposed to be in Hawaii all week. Well, guys, Charlie, my five-year-old, she tested positive for COVID on her travel test, so we had to cancel our entire trip. And she's fine. She wasn't sick. I was not expecting her to come back positive. But my mom and family, they were still able to go. So it was just me, my husband, and my kids that stayed back. And with that, my mom, who's normally our co-host, won't be joining us today because she's in Hawaii. But I have another guest. I was bummed last week when I couldn't go to Hawaii. And I said last week in our episode, which was based in Hawaii, that I felt like I was meant to come across the case that we did. Well, this week, I feel that even stronger. What's crazy is that right in parallel with me finding out that I had to cancel our trip, I actually came across this story. And it's the story that I'm sharing with you today. Literally hours after canceling everything, I'm like scrolling on TikTok and I come across an account called Ali Likes Adventure. And maybe it's Ali, I'm not sure how you say it. It's A-I-L-I dot likes dot adventure. And she shares that she came across the Instagram dedicated to a man that she went to high school with. And she goes on to summarize a small part of the story and it just hit me. I felt this overwhelming need to reach out to the family to see if they wanted to share their story here on my platform because that's what we do. We have an episode almost every month that includes an interview. But this story... It's not really in the news. You can't just find all the information on it through Google. And our victim's father, who you will hear from throughout this episode, was willing to share his story with me so that we can together give you an in-depth look at this case. Are you ready for today's case? I just wanted to hop in here real quick and remind you guys that since this story really isn't in the news, I got all my information from David's family, from his dad, who I am interviewing today. And I do want you to keep in mind that I haven't been able to talk to the police department and I haven't been able to talk to those that are questionable in this case. So with that, we have kept a lot of names anonymous until there can be a better investigation. And that's what Scott is fighting for. He's wanting an outside prosecutor assigned to this case so that he can get real answers. So today I'm giving Scott and his family this platform to share their story because the only way they're going to get an outside investigator is with public support. 
Okay, guys, it's February 9th, 2018 at 12.45 a.m. when Scott Elmquist and his wife receive a phone call that would forever change their lives. It was his son, David's wife. And for our story today, we are just going to call her Miss X. This is how David's family refers to her in order to protect her identity until there is maybe a better investigation to come. So Miss X is calling Scott and he's confused. Like, why is she calling my phone? She's never called my phone before. And Scott's thinking she's calling to yell at him about how he had just agreed to let his son move back into his home. It was earlier in the day on February 8th when Scott's son David comes over to his parents' house to talk. And David had a lot on his mind. He had been struggling recently, and a big factor in that was his marriage. The reason David came to talk was to ask his mom and dad how they felt if he got divorced. You see, David and his wife were raised in the same very conservative Christian church, a church that valued marriage, and he wanted to make sure that his family was going to be okay within that church if he chose to divorce his wife. They had been married only for about 11 months at this point. And Scott tells David, like, yes, if you are suffering, it's okay to leave. You can come and move in with us. And David was laying out big reasons. He just couldn't be with his wife anymore. He just said she's manipulative. Our relationship is toxic. You know, she keeps me from you guys. So David's mom agrees that he shouldn't be in the marriage any longer. And she asks him, what would happen if you went home to talk to your wife about this? And David responds with, she'd go ballistic. And because of this, Scott ignores her call. He doesn't need to put up with his son's wife. David is literally leaving her the very next day. He had just planned with his parents to gather his things and move into their house the following day. But this is not why Miss X was calling Scott's phone. So she called David's mom instead. And when she hears her phone ringing, she starts looking for it. And she's grabbing at it. She's trying to answer, but she just doesn't get to the call in time. And it goes to voicemail. Immediately, Miss X is calling Scott's phone again. And this time he answers because this is really strange. Why is she calling us over and over again? And then I pick it up and she goes, "Um, Scott, I don't know how to tell you this, but um, David started a fire. He started himself on fire and it doesn't look good. And I'm like, what? What are you talking about? Yeah, it it doesn't look good. So I, I, I hang up the phone and we scramble to get dressed and we're driving, you know, we drive about whatever, 10 miles. We come to Waverly and she calls back and she goes, you know, I talked to the surgeons and they said that there's a 1% chance that he's going to survive. And then I become inconsolable. I can't yeah. drive. My wife drives. I, I got a, I grabbed a, a, a kitchen towel to, you know, put my tears in and I'm, mm-hmm. you know, I'm whatever, hyperventilating. I couldn't believe this. Mm. So that's the gruesome reality of my existence. As you just heard, after receiving that phone call, David's parents rushed to the hospital where David was put on a ventilator, but he wouldn't survive. It was in the early morning hours of February 9th 
that David Elmquist died of his injuries shortly after being taken off that ventilator. Well, yeah, it probably wouldn't have been right to keep him on a ventilator so people could say their goodbyes just given his condition. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I've always believed that, you know, if you're going to die, there's no sense prolonging it, you know, just let the poor person die. Um, so so I left and um, my, I mean, we're completely, we're, I mean, I coach my kids skiing from the time they were three years old and mm-hmm. spent my entire life, you know, just, I could have taken other job promotions and things. I said, no, I like the flexibility. I hang out with my kids and ski race, you know, play tennis with them. Yeah. And, um, you know, here I lose my son and we're running out of the hospital. I just can't believe what happened. And Miss X never went into the room to look at him. When he came there, her, her attitude was so peculiar with her mother too. And I personally think her mother knows a heck of a lot more mm-hmm. uh, that, that happened. And I went to hug her and they're both just kind of like went back and they're just like stiff. Wow. Yeah, it was just, the whole thing was just weird. But like I said, that's just anecdotal, you know, conjecture. But when you add it to the whole narrative, it all adds up. So after David passes away, police rule his death as a suicide. They say that on this horrific night, David had a mental break. And with that, he poured this oil all over his body before pushing his wife out of their apartment, locking the door, and lighting himself on fire with a lighter. And David's parents believed the police's narrative. At first. I mean, he locked the door, right? How could the door be locked if he wasn't the one who did this? Well, as we'll see, Things aren't quite as they seem, and when the stories surrounding this case start to break down, the autopsy photos are also obtained, showing a protected area on David's wrists that are clean from the burning the rest of his body receives. And that stops everyone in their tracks. So police are saying that David took his own life using self-immolation, And this is a very rare form of suicide. In fact, when it is used as a form of suicide, it is usually for political or religious reasons, oftentimes as a nonviolent way to protest or like an act of a martyr. Um, The other thing, too, is if you could ever direct people, you know, if if it fits, but direct them to truthfordavid.com and ask them, to uh, watch, it's very graphic, mm-hmm. but it's it's very telling about the self-immolation demonstration done by a fire um, fighter or whatever. Okay, yes. Mm-hmm. It's during David's funeral that Scott eulogizes his son, and he is open with those who attended. He's talking about David taking his own life, and this was really heart-wrenching for everyone. David was his parents' youngest of their four children. He was the baby of the family. Scott and his wife had actually raised all of their kids there in Minnesota, and this is where they were still living and where David also lived at the time of his death. And they are close with their kids, and to lose one is a devastation that will never go away. Scott talked about his son's life and all that he loved to do. 
David grew up skiing with his family, and he was good at it, achieving many accomplishments within the sport. If you can ever find a picture of David, he he was the cutest redhead kid you could ever ask for. Um, you know, we had three three boys, one girl. David was the youngest. Uh, he was very passive. It's easy to remember, but his last two <clears throat> years um, as a high school racer, and these are you know more club races, but still, it's a great accomplishment. He won oh, yeah. seven of eleven. Um, he loved to golf. He golfed a lot with his brother, Seth. He, he was trying to find his way. He went to a, a conservative, very conservative Bible college for two years. He didn't graduate. He eventually went out and worked with his big brother, uh, who is a, a consultant out on the oil field. So he worked with him, you know, as a roughneck. And he loved that. He loved working out there with his big brother. When he uh, was working out in the oil fields, if you can believe this, he would actually pray, lead prayer with some of his fellow oil oh. workers. He would sing praise songs with them. That was reported to me at his funeral. And uh, we, we don't gloss over his chemical dependency issues. I know when I listened to the podcast, the first that I did, it sounded like I was making an excuse for David, saying he was under a lot of stress with his marriage. But I think it's worth noting, too, that he did not use cannabis when he was out in the North Dakota oil fields because he did regular drug testing. So it was really right. after that, which was... Um, so probably six, eight months before he died. So he had eight months that he wasn't getting tested. So he, he was participating in that and he drank his Captain Morgan. But if you met him, um, he's a very, I mean, I had school teachers tell me, you know, before he died, just that he's just such a nice, gracious kid. You can just look at a picture of him and say, wow, what a cool, wonderful little boy. You know, yeah. so, so that's kind of... Um, that's kind of a brief history there of, of Davy Boy Green, as I called him. I had many nicknames for him. Oh, the Dreamer. I love it. Yes, I love the that. Sh- the Sugar Boy. <laughs> so, That's so cute. Uh, yeah, I wish you could somehow put a picture of him up and people would say, wow, I just want to give that guy a hug. As you heard, after David spent some time at college, he moves out to North Dakota to work in the oil fields with his brother. And he moves back to Minnesota just eight months before his death. Yeah, you know, his wife did not want to, she refused to live out there, even though when they initially got engaged, uh, she moved out there. My daughter lives out there on a, on a farm and they had uh, they had a double wide moved in there for oil workers. So she, she was good friends with my daughter. Um, but when he, so she refused and, and, you know, he, he was just, he's just like, you know, he loved doing that. And everybody is, his wife is saying, no, you're, you're not going to work. Um, you're, you're moving home. They actually postponed their wedding. Um, I don't know how, how many, if it's a month or a year, just cause he wanted to keep working. But when he came back, he eventually got a job at a well company out of here in Maple Plain, okay. um, doing, doing like commercial wells. So he was working you know, up until he died. So where in all of this did David meet his wife? Well, he grew up with her. David's family and Miss X's family all attended the same church. David and Miss X attended Sunday school together, and David always had a crush on her. Once they were out of high school, Miss X reaches out to David. She wants to see him. And it was then that their relationship bloomed. 
you know, he asked me before he died, like the week before he died, when he got out of the hospital, he said, Dad, what do you think? And I wish to God I would have taken it back. But I said, you know, I said, he is your wife. And when we met and talked on the last day of his life, you know, I said, what what God has joined together, let no man put asunder. And so I wish I wouldn't have said that. But he asked me on that last day, he, he wanted a divorce. He said, how would this affect you at the church? And I just said, David, this has nothing to do with it. And I told him, I said, David, you know, because of his sensitive psychosis condition, I said, David, when you go back to your apartment, do not, you know, he's going to move home the next day. And I said, can you take a long lunch break and just grab your stuff, put it in your truck, and after work, just drive straight home? And he had said, you know, my wife said, what would happen if you went back and just talked to her? And he said, oh, she'd go ballistic. And then eight hours after that comment, he's dead. But she would literally take, you know, you can flick people, you know, with your finger, mm-hmm. right? She yep. would she would actually flick him in the face. Oh, my gosh. That's yeah, so, just I mean, this so is, sad. This is, yeah, and this like is in front of you guys? psychological abuse. Now, many of these things that were red flags to David's family are things that any of us could have done, right? Like, I'm sure we've all acted inappropriately. I've definitely acted in ways that I'm embarrassed of when I was being dramatic. But I think it's good to note in this case, just as a brief look into their relationship. And unfortunately, I don't think we talk enough about men who are in domestic abuse relationships. Remember, domestic abuse isn't only physical. It can be emotional, financial, or mental. Signs of domestic abuse in a relationship are things such as controlling behavior, isolation from friends and family, manipulation, and obviously seeing physical violence. Now, this all brings us to the time leading up to David's death. So David was 24 years old at the time that he died, and in the weeks leading up to his death, his mental health had started to break down. And what really pisses me off is that Scott has had to deal with judgment on his son and naysayers because of the choices David had made throughout his early adult years. Remember, they're in a very conservative and religious community, and the way some people have acted about this story simply because David smoked a little weed once in a while is outrageous. So when David becomes an adult, he decided to branch out of his church by drinking a little, he used some tobacco once in a while, and he smoked weed, aka cannabis, marijuana, whatever you want to call it. And this is super normal for someone in their early 20s. And David worked this whole time as a functional adult. He drug tested at his job over in the oil fields. So he didn't use it during that time. It's not like he had this problem with these substances. He was just choosing to use them. So like I said, David's mental health had started to suffer. And as I explained, David sometimes smoked weed. And I guess there is some speculation that his use of weed led to a psychosis. And I want to say here that I have never in my life seen weed do this to someone. So I'm very skeptical that weed or alcohol would be a like standalone reason for the psychosis that David eventually ends up in. But I looked up a study just to be completely transparent with you guys, and I found this on drugabuse.gov. 
quote, studies have linked marijuana use to increase increased risk for psychiatric disorders, including psychosis, depression, anxiety, and substance use disorders. But whether and to what extent actually causes these conditions is not always easy to determine. Recent research suggests that smoking high-potency marijuana every day could increase the chances of developing psychosis by nearly five times compared to people who have never used marijuana. The amount of drug used, the age at first use, and genetic vulnerability have all been shown to influence this relationship. The strongest evidence to date concerns links between marijuana use and psychiatric disorders in those with pre-existing genetic or other vulnerability, end quote. So according to that study, it sounds like weed can maybe affect someone if they're already vulnerable, I can't say that word, vulnerable to a mental health struggle. And what I find far more likely is that David came to the age where psychosis normally presents itself. Whether the use of marijuana or alcohol played a role in this, I don't know. But I do know at the time of his death, his autopsy was clean of drugs and alcohol. He had no THC or alcohol in his system at the time that he died. He was, however, 24, which I stated earlier, and this is around the time that someone will see signs of a mental disorder such as psychosis. So according to nigh.nih.gov, quote, psychosis often begins when a person is in their late teens to mid-20s. Psychosis can be a symptom of a mental illness or a physical condition. Psychosis can be caused by some medications, alcohol, or drug abuse. Three out of 100 people will experience psychosis at some point in their lives, end quote. And with this diagnosis, it's easy to be like, okay, well, David was in a bad mental state, especially if he was in a psychosis, like why wouldn't he have been the one to hurt himself that night? Which on the surface, yeah. But I think that's the problem here. A person struggling with mental health is often disregarded in missing and murdered cases. It's easy to look at this case on the surface and say, yep, he was capable of taking his own life. Yeah, and I think it's worth noting that the the investigators marginalized David, and that's why they've been able to try to just brush off this case, even though there's flagrant um, misconduct. I mean, it's worth pointing out, which I didn't do the other podcast and I don't, I, I shouldn't have any, you know, fear in doing it, but I circulated a letter to, uh, to a couple of the, I think it was the investigator as well as a chief of police. And it was the first time I, I included him. And also that I found out who the city attorney was. And I, I, I put in, you know, professional language that, you know, if you think that this is just your, you know, crazy man committing suicide, you know, think again. And I I wrote a little paper, a little note to the prosecutor, and I, I entitled it Concerning the Plymouth Police. So they were fully aware of every grievance and complaint I had against them. And within two months after circulating that email, 
this 54 year old guy who, you know, he had the, you know, uh, I, you know, I'm sure he's making at least a buck 65 a year plus benefits. Mm-hmm. Uh, he retires. And then there was a, the number two guy there. He got out of law enforcement. So I don't think that's a coincidence. So now we're here three weeks before David's death. It's a Wednesday and David texts his dad. And Scott's a little confused because the text is strange and he actually hasn't talked to David in a couple of months. Remember, Miss X was isolating David from his family. But it was odd. So I hadn't heard from him for a few months and I'm sitting down here. And at the time, my son, Seth, I'm a financial advisor and my son, Seth, was working with me. And I'm like, oh, wow, David just texted me and it said, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Mm-hmm. And and I thought, oh, that's weird. And then he called me up, and then he was just delusional. And, he, you know, he was very, he was talking like, um, you know, Dad, when you came out to the oil fields, you know, you were like a righteous man, and everybody knew it. And when you left, everything changed. And I'm like, David, what, I mean, this, this doesn't make sense. And I was very concerned. I had him on a speakerphone. My son Seth heard most of the conversation. And this is in the morning. I mean, this is like 10 in the morning or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, my heart's pumping. I'm thinking, this this is just weird. So that's on a Wednesday. And then by Friday, you know, I told my wife. So David's parents, they decide to go over to his house that Friday, just a couple of days after that text was sent. It's January 12th, 2018. And David's parents, they brought a drug test with them because... They couldn't think of any other reason that David would be acting this way. It's not someone's first thought usually to be like, you know what? I think my family member who I've known for 24 years is all of a sudden having a mental break. So initially, they had planned with Miss X to be over there around 7 p.m. This is when Miss X would be home from work, but they made it over there a bit early, arriving closer to 6 p.m. And when David's wife walks through the door, his parents are met with anger. Like, why are you here right now? I told you that you couldn't come over till seven. And they're a little taken back and confused. So Scott just looks at David and is like, listen, we brought a drug test. Don't be mad. It seems like something is going on with you. We are super concerned. Would you be willing to take this test? And immediately David's like, sure. So he stands up and he just strips down naked right there in front of everyone. His parents, again, are confused, but they're just rolling with the punches because they can tell something is wrong with him right now and they just want answers on how they can help him. The drug test he takes, it comes back positive for THC, marijuana, cannabis, weed, again, whatever you call it. And this made sense because three days earlier, David had smoked weed on the birthday of a friend who passed away. Now, keep in mind, when the medical examiner, three weeks later, does a blood test to see what was in his system at the time that he died, there was no THC present. And this normally stays in your system for about 30 days, so it's likely that the three days before his psychosis was, in fact, the last time that he did get high on weed. And it's after this drug test that David ends up on his knees, still naked and praying, sort of moaning and calling out to the Lord. This was very unusual for everyone there. 
And as this is happening, Miss X bends down right in front of David's face and she starts smacking him hard. And she's yelling at him. Like three times, like, David, David, David. And then my wife just starts screaming, like, what are you doing? And she's like, well, it's worked before. And, uh, you know, it's whatever. Like, we got David dressed and, you know, I was like holding, you know, kind of keeping her away from him. Not that she was like a pursuing him, but just stay away. David, come on. You've always, always trusted me. He wanted to drive the truck. I said, we got to go to the hospital and. Fortunately, he said, okay, and I drove his truck with him to the hospital and, or to the clinic, and then he eventually, you know, we ended up down at the Fairview Medical Health, uh, Mental Health Hospital or whatever it's called. They prescribed, I think it, it's pronounced Risperdone. Okay. I think that's, I'm, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right. But anyways, he was supposed to take that every day. Um, you know, it's like an antipsychotic In relation to Miss X smacking David, she later on tells investigators after David died that, quote, and this would happen in the past, I would normally try to get his attention. I would smack him in the face, grab his face and say, look at me. Um, His parents didn't really like that. um, But, you know, that's a different story. End quote. Scott later on finds out that Miss X would often smack, poke, or grab David's face. When Scott witnessed David in his psychosis, he explained to me that he was completely defenseless. He couldn't even react to her hitting him in the face. Scott explains this by saying that if he had asked David to go jump out of a window, he would have. So this gives us somewhat of an idea of David's behavior when he fell into a psychosis. We got him in the hospital that night then, right? Mm-hmm. He didn't want to be with her. I'm the one who got her, got him in there. Um, anyways, when we got to the hospital, we were so upset with her that I told her, I said, I'm going to get legal guardianship of David. So David ends up spending 12 days there at the Fairview's mental health facility as he was getting his mental health in check. And as you heard, he got prescribed an antipsychotic drug and he was kind of returning to being himself. Now he did stop taking this antipsychotic at least four days before the apartment fire. So Scott believes that David could have fallen back into a psychosis that night. Again, this could lead you to believe that maybe David did do this. So we know that David had gone to his parents' house that morning to tell his parents that he needed to divorce his wife. And with that, they planned for David to move into their home on February 9th, the very next day. The same day that he would actually pass away at 2.46 a.m. Scott had asked David not to bring up the divorce to his wife because A, his mental condition wasn't superb at the moment, and B, he clearly stated that she would go ballistic. This meeting was just a little more than a week after he got out of the mental health facility. And at 9.58 p.m. on February 8th, Scott texts his son to ask for his doctor's phone number. And David responds, quote, hey, just saw this. I honestly can't find it. I can call the place tomorrow and get his number. I need to schedule an appointment anyways, end quote. And Scott replies with an okay, and he tells David to sleep well. David thanks his dad and says will do. 
It's almost exactly one hour later that 911 receives a phone call. And it's from David's next door neighbor, there in his apartment complex. It's 10.59 p.m. and the dispatcher answers the phone. 911, what's your emergency? And there's a woman on the other end of the phone call and she raises her voice. There's a fire in our apartment complex, in apartment 352. Someone set their apartment on fire. And the dispatcher is like, okay, is everyone out of the apartment safely? But this woman, she doesn't know. Quote, I've got a feeling. I don't know. There was a lady running around screaming and I see smoke coming out. The air is really bad. The fire is really bad. The fire is really bad. End quote. And while this neighbor was on the phone with 911, Miss X had been running down the hallway where she meets up with her neighbor's boyfriend or husband. So the neighbor, she called 911 and her partner was already in the hallway. And he meets up with Miss X down by the laundry room where he tells Miss X to call 911. He's literally looking at her, holding a cell phone in her hand and screaming about how her husband is about to start a fire. The neighbor was interviewed after David's death by the state fire marshal, and the neighbor recalls feeling like Miss X hadn't even thought about calling 911 until he asked her to. It's one minute after the neighbor's phone call that Miss X dials 911. Again, a dispatcher answers, 911, what's your emergency? And Miss X says, my husband has started a fire. And the dispatcher is like, okay, can you see any flames? And Miss X replies, I saw smoke. And she's screaming and he says, you know, what's going on? I don't know. I don't know. My husband, I think he's going to start a fire. He says there's smoke coming from the apartment. She, however, said on recorded interviews, she says, you know, you said, did the fire start before you left? This is when Miss X says, no, she didn't see a fire. But as she was running down the hall, she did see a whiff of smoke. Well, the gal, the next door neighbor who called 58 seconds before reading the 911 transcript, which they did the best to redact as much as they could to muck the waters. Mm -hmm. But she describes it as, oh, it's a terrible fire, terrible smoke. And I think she's cursing like, you know, oh, my God, whatever. At some point, the fire alarms in the apartment building go off. It sounds like right around 11, one minute before 11. Unless this was Scott telling me about the 911 call that went in. But on our interview, he says that the fire alarms went off sometime just right before 11. Now, if these times are correct... That means the fire alarms are going off at the same time that the first 911 phone call comes in, one minute before Miss X even calls. And this whole time, she's telling her neighbors and the police that there was not a fire before she was shoved out of the apartment. And the maintenance worker who lived on the first floor, he comes running upstairs Now he's in the hallway when Miss X is running down the hallway before she eventually exits the building because she thinks the apartment is about to blow up. And this worker, he literally passes Miss X in the hall as he runs toward her apartment that is on fire. Yet she will claim 
that there wasn't a fire before she was pushed out of the apartment. The maintenance worker, I believe, lived on the first floor. He was up there within, you know, two minutes probably from the time because from what I can gather, he he was even up there by the time she was running down the hall. So that is another indication the fire had already started. This maintenance worker ends up grabbing a fire extinguisher and running into the apartment. But wait, how does he get into the apartment so quickly? Didn't police tell Scott that David pushed his wife out of the door and locked it? This was the irrefutable evidence that made Scott believe during David's funeral that he had to have taken his own life if the door was locked. He would have been the only one in the apartment who could have locked it. But no, the maintenance worker didn't even have a key to get into all the apartments. And he didn't kick the door in. It wasn't damaged. He just walked right in. That door was unlocked. There was a small fire in the kitchen that this man put out with the fire extinguisher, and then he sees David coming out of the bedroom. David was so burned that the maintenance worker later states that he couldn't tell if this man was Asian or Caucasian. I think referring to the fact that his skin was so charred, and as we will later find out, his eyelids were burned so severely they were inverted. Now, this worker also states that he did see flames on David at this time, so he shoots him with a fire extinguisher. And at that point, there was too much smoke in the apartment, so this man runs out of David's apartment, shutting the door behind him, leaving David inside. In David's autopsy, this story proves to be pretty spot on because there is proof that David was in fact hit with the fire extinguisher. And the police believe this is justification for believing he committed suicide. So get this, because there's footprints around the apartment, when the door was shut after the the maintenance worker hit him, there's all kinds of smoke they had to get out of there um, because it was so smoky. So here you got a guy who's, you know, he's blind. His eyelids are inverted, all right? He's got inhalation burns inside his mouth, his nose. So he couldn't even see. No, no. So not only that, but he's in the smoke filled. So they think, well, look at all these footprints. That's so that he could have come out if he wanted to. He stumbled around. And then eventually he ended up, he sat on one chair and then sometime he moved and he spent the, the balance of the time, we believe, in a love seat. You know, just whatever. He was waiting for help. I, you know, it, if you're dealing with psychosis and then you've been lit on fire, you're in shock and who knows what's going through his brain. You know, oh, absolutely. So, so keep in mind, they're trying to cr- create a narrative that he was cognizant of his actions and he knew what he was doing. And that's why they say they told the fire marshal that he came out, get this, I could use a drink of water. There's no forensic pathologist that would ever say, unless they had a vested interest, which this gal that did the autopsy, there's two people that worked on it. She goes, oh, no, he could have talked. OK, let's get t- 100 pathologists outside of Minnesota, and they're going to say, you're full of it. Okay, so I just want to replay this and see if I'm following it correct. So the fire started in the kitchen, and it was him that was on fire. So a fire started on him in the kitchen. And then his wife is already, you know, out of the apartment, she says. But At this point, after he's on fire, he makes his way into his bedroom. 
Mm-hmm. And is he still on fire at that point? Well, I think that when he lay down, uh, you know, there's there's skin remnants on the, the bed. So he would have been, um, you know, that would have, you would hope, would have put out the fire. David's family later finds out once David is taken to the hospital that it's determined he was burned on 90% of his body. He had inhalation burns on the inside of his mouth, up his nose, and on his tongue. His lips and ears were burned and his eyelids, like I said, they were inverted, leaving him completely blind in one eye and mostly blind in the other. Now, it's only one to two minutes after the maintenance worker puts out the fire that police show up and police assess the situation by talking to David's wife as well as the witnesses in the hallway and the maintenance worker, maybe. So the maintenance worker was just inside, right? He literally just saw David burned on his entire body. David was no threat to this maintenance worker. So I'm not sure what the police asked this man or if they even listened to him at all. Scott talked with the maintenance worker and he said that he actually didn't even know if he talked to the police. Who knows, but it's worth noting that in the fire marshal's report, which they wish they would have never released because that's what really damned them, mm-hmm. they said they said the maintenance worker, and I can read it verbatim here because this is one thing I pulled out. They said a maintenance, uh, maintenance person opened up the apartment and put out the kitchen fire but was not able to see the mail in the apartment. So it's hard for me to believe that if they found out the maintenance worker put out the fire, that he wouldn't say, hey, I, I saw him, I shot him with the fire extinguisher. But again, because he's a severe alcoholic, you know, they could quickly undermine him or just say, he didn't tell us that or whatever. But, right. you, know, you know, so. But they did listen to Miss X, who was like, you know what? I think my husband might be dangerous. I think he might possess some knives. Oh, and he's also suicidal. He's he's definitely tried suicide in the past. She said he had a knife? Well, right. According to the fire marshal, you know, he told me, I said, well, why didn't they go in there? And this is before he knew that this whole thing was coming apart, right? Mm-hmm. So he tells me, oh, well, she said he had knives. And then there's another reference in there that he's attempted suicide before. Well, Miss X, um, three days before he got out of the hospital in the medical records, she's interviewed on a couple occasions over that week when he was in the hospital. And she says, oh, he's been doing bizarre stuff for three months, you know, for a month and a half, this and that. Um, But then... Uh, But And then they ask her, did he ever threaten suicide? No. But now to police, Miss X is saying, yeah, he actually, he was suicidal. In fact, he possesses knives. And that's what she told the fire marshal as well. It's because of these statements that police do not allow fire and rescue to go inside the apartment to help David. So instead, police prop open the door. They set up a bunker outside of the door, positioning a police officer on each side of this bunker, as well as a command station in the apartment next door. 
So they set up a bunker in the door. They had officers positioned on each side of the door. And then they had a command center in the apartment directly across. That doesn't sound like a a police department that was positioning themselves uh, because the person has purposely lit himself on fire and is acting irrationally. That sounds like they were very, very scared based upon what Miss X told them not to go in there because he'll talk you with a knife. And so then they made this horrendous mistake. So they're out there propped up with all this stuff. They're holding down the, the fire and rescue people from going in there. They shoot out the windows, and after 38 minutes from the time the, the first 911 call came in, David manages to, I mean, his flesh is falling off of him, smearing on the walls. He stumbles out half mummified, and they think, oh my God, what did we do? As you just heard, police didn't allow fire and rescue inside the apartment at all to bring David out. They left David in there, alive, but severely burned and dying, for 38 minutes. Outside of the apartment building, an officer decides to shoot out the windows. This could help clear the smoke out of the apartment. But when he shoots, he realizes that the windows, well, they're already open. The, there was two windows that were completely slid open. Mm-hmm. And, and there's no oil um, leading up, in fact, I was working on this just before you called, but there's no oil leading up to the windows, which means David would have to have said, you know what, I'm going to light myself on fire now. And uh, so because it's going to be smoky, I'm going to go walk over and slide these windows open. And then I'm going to start pouring oil on myself because, again, there's no oil. The investigators tracked oil into their main bedroom um, and that's their foot. There's no footprints of David. Um, you know, they could try to maybe say there's something there. But on the other mm-hmm. one, it, it was clean. There's nothing there. And there's it's irrefutable. There's no oil or, or, or footprints leading up to that window. And yet it's noted in the supplement report. And that's what I, I read today that he said, you know, after they shot out the windows, this officer number 130 says, I then realized the glass window was already open and I only shot through a screen. Well, that should have been a red flag there. Yeah. Um, you don't you don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure out, like, what now? This, the windows are already ventilated. So that's just more proof that David was on fire before she exited. And I also believe there's evidence of a second port. Now, circling back around to David being left alone in his apartment after being lit on fire for 38 minutes. When I first heard this, it boiled my blood. I was like, okay, what the hell? Why would they do this? And while I am still heartbroken that this happened and I think it was a devastating mistake... I did call my dad, who has worked as a firefighter paramedic for the last 17 years. And I guess it is standard protocol for law enforcement and fire and rescue. However, he has never been in a situation where someone is described as dangerous during a fire. So he's not quite sure how that situation would go down. But he believed if they had all the information, if they knew a guy was in there with his entire body burnt, they would try to rescue whoever was inside. 
His name is Lauren, and here's what he had to say when I asked him about how in the world a dying man was left inside an apartment for almost 40 minutes. If we get calls of people that are violent, whether it's like a domestic dispute dispute, or someone's suicidal and might have a weapon or homicidal or whatever, if they pose a threat, a lot of times uh, the cops will have a stage, which is just kind of sit parked around the corner until they go clear whatever the problem might be. Okay. Now, I haven't had that happen on a fire. Like um, where okay. someone was on fire or there was someone inside during a fire. I haven't had that happen. It's usually like, you know, somebody that has threatened themselves and someone says they have a gun with them or a knife or threatened somebody else or somebody's beating somebody up. And so the cops just make us wait because we don't carry guns or anything. So they try to keep us safe. I've never had it happen on a fire. It's hard to say. I don't, I don't want to armchair quarterback it because every call is different. And to not be there and say they did everything right or something wrong, that's really hard to do. I just never personally had that. I, I don't know how me or my crew would approach that specific situation. Yeah, like uh, someone being... Known victims inside if there was a fire. I, I would imagine we would try to put out the fire. Yeah, well, the thing from the door, but yeah, the thing is that the fire was already put out by that maintenance worker. So I don't think the it sounds to me that the police were there and the firefighters were like down outside, kind of like you said, like not super involved. Okay, that yeah, that makes more sense. If they thought the fire was out and the cops just told them to stage mm-hmm. until they cleared it, that happens a lot on stuff like. Um, SWAT calls, right? Yeah. Where nobody can go in until they know that that person that's in a standoff or something and could be hours right. before they realize the guy's already shot himself or whatever. Um, I mean, if they knew there was a known victim who was burned badly and still alive, I'm sure they would have gone in. Yeah. But did the cops actually know that until he stumbled out or did they think he was already dead in there i mean who knows what they thought or knew right but it is but it is pretty typical generally not specific to this situation but generally to have fire stage or ems stage until the cops clear something that's been deemed possibly dangerous all these cops and fire guys they've seen a lot of crazy stuff and they've seen a lot of people with knives and a lot of people kill themselves and a lot of people will be murdered and they so they're a little cautious rightfully so now this was good information for me to have and I find it valuable to share with you as well because it did calm me down a bit surrounding the whole situation outside of the apartment while I still think a mistake was made because David was clearly burned not a threat and suffering inside I am able to give the handling of it, at least up to this point, a little more grace. Because the only reason police believed David was so dangerous was because of the narrative Miss X told them as soon as they arrived. She was the only one saying he might own knives, that he might attack them. 
It sounds to me like the police came and because of the information that they got from Miss X, instead of thinking to help him, they thought that, you know, they went into this with, okay, this is a guy with mental health. He's lying in wait. They're scared of him. So they wait outside of his apartment and when he stumbles out and they see the condition he's in, that he clearly could not have hurt them, they panic. Absolutely. That's exactly what happened. Even when David finally stumbles out of the apartment and collapses onto the floor, police are still scared of him and they order him to crawl to the left. And then they check him for weapons. A naked and burned man whose flesh is literally falling off of him, who just collapsed in front of you. You're checking him for weapons? Yeah. Then David was commanded to crawl by the police. David was checked for weapons. Yeah, it's just this He was checked for weapons when he was naked and burned? Yeah, that's what they say from the fire department. And uh, interestingly, the chief of police had a new position like for the last 10 years or something. And he's 54 years old and he retired early, um, you know, like I said, two months after. But he is actually, uh, I think the official title is the, um, uh, like the safety director or something like that. So he would oversee both the fire department and the police. So then we get the fire department report. And in it, in it, it says the Plymouth officers checked the man for weapons. Uh, That is insane. Not only do police check him for weapons, but they also report that he said he could use a drink of water. Let's keep in mind his lips, tongue, inside of his mouth, his throat, his nose, they were all burned. And while he maybe could mutter out some sounds, it's highly unlikely that he could clearly state such a thing. Police do use this as more evidence pointing to the fact that David did this to himself. Because they asked Scott, like, why wouldn't David come out and say his wife did this to him? Now, this part of the story actually reminds me, I cannot think of the name of the victim, which breaks my heart. But if you are, you know, an avid true crime listener, you'll probably know the case. She, this girl, she was taken and she was burned in the woods, burned alive by this horrific dude that is a piece of shit. And she ends up like escaping him. She was totally burned alive and she runs out to the road and, you know, people find her And while she does mutter things and, you know, she is getting words out, they can't actually really tell what she's saying. You know, when someone's burned that badly, especially on the inside of their mouth, it sounds like, you know, it's really hard to put together what's actually coming out. And in that case, you know, some firefighters thought she, you know, said one name and, you know, it came down to this whole thing about people arguing about what name she said and them i i think not kind of focusing on the right guy right at first because they were so focused on this name they thought she said but she couldn't speak clearly because of her burns so you know that just kind of reminded me of this and kind of made me think like 
Maybe he muttered something, but I highly doubt they could just clearly hear like, oh, hey, I could use a drink of water. Now, they really tried to put up the front that David was fully aware of what was going on, that he was purposely not coming out of his apartment until he needed that drink of water or got spooked by the windows being shot out. Keep in mind, David dies at the hospital shortly after this. He was severely damaged. His body and mind probably didn't even know what was happening. That kind of pain and damage is something I can't even begin to think about. They go on to report that there was a brief standoff with David because he wouldn't exit his apartment. Which you guys, his freaking eyelids are inverted. He is basically blind. What is happening here? His flesh was literally falling off of his body, leaving remnants on the bed and the couches that he probably collapsed onto while stumbling you know, around his apartment and trying to get out. The police also report that while the maintenance worker did put out the fire, he never actually saw the man inside. And this is just blatantly not true and proved not true when fire extinguisher dust is found on David in his autopsy. David's family asks police officers about this whole incident with the maintenance worker. They're like, hey, so why did you guys think David was so dangerous? Because the maintenance worker had just been in there minutes earlier and he was not attacked. And he saw a severely burned man in need of help. And an officer responds, well, he didn't have to go in. He could have just stood in the hallway. And first of all, this statement is just rude and insensitive to the family. And then second, it was actually impossible for the worker to have put out the fire in the kitchen without going inside because the fire was by the dishwasher, which couldn't be seen from the front door. David's family does go on to ask for the police to obtain phone records to see if there was any phone activity on Miss X's phone during the time she claims to have been asleep before David woke her up to rush her out of the apartment. There apparently was a delay because Miss X changed her service provider during this time and Scott just kept being told like, nope, we don't have the phone records until finally on his birthday, he is told by a man named Mr. Harris that they were able to obtain these phone records and him and a colleague, they identified some investigative steps to be undertaken and they are in the process of that follow up. And when they tell Scott this on his birthday, this is six months after Scott asks for the phone records. And then time just continues to go by until 14 months later. This is two years after David's death when Scott asks about the phone records again, asking if there was any activity on Miss X's phone during the time she says she was asleep. And the only follow-up Scott ever receives is five months later. And Mr. Harris replies with, oh, yeah, I do have that material in my office, but my recollection is no. And that's that. Scott was never able to see these records. Miss X has said in a recorded interview that it was a pretty normal night. 
then she goes on to explain that after going to sleep, she is eventually woken up by David, who is naked and has oil poured all over him. And he pushes her up against the wall. I was able to get the lighter, but then he got it back. And then I got oil all over me. And so I went into the kitchen. And then this is something we learned on a auto recording. She goes, you know, because I thought if he lights this, I'm going up in flames too. So she goes into the bathroom and cleans up. And then she says she comes back. He has the lighter. I wrestle with him again. I get the lighter, but he gets it back. And then he pushes me out of the apartment. And she ends up having the dog, David's brand new truck, you know, keys to his brand new truck and um, her cell phone. And let me point out, the county that handled David's death investigation, they have a long history of police corruption. That podcast I talked about earlier, The Josh Terry Show. He told David's dad that he has a lot of friends from Hennepin County, and they told him the same thing, that this area is actually known for shoddy police work. In a document that Scott emailed me, he asked the question if Hennepin County sounds familiar to any of you. Well, if it doesn't, maybe this will help rack your memory. Hennepin County Attorney's Office is the office that prosecuted former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin in the death of George Floyd. It was February 26, 2020, when the New York Times released an article that was titled Klobuchar Ramped Up Prosecutions Except in Cases Against Police. The article goes on to explain that the Hennepin County District Attorney didn't file charges in more than two dozen police-involved deaths. And going along with this, 60 Minutes released an episode with the Minnesota Attorney General Keith Ellison, who pointed out that until the conviction of Derek Chauvin, there had never been a Hennepin County prosecution and conviction of a Minneapolis police officer for second-degree murder. Scott points out that in order to support the dedicated officers who serve us, we have to hold others accountable if they obstruct justice or break the law. The district attorney at the time of the George Floyd investigation was Mike Freeman. And not only was he thrown off of this case, but his entire team was because of an inappropriate meeting with Hennepin County's medical examiner. Scott again points out in this document that the George Floyd case was possibly the highest profile civil rights case in history and Hennepin County was removed from that case. He goes on to say, Quote, it is well believed that if there is a case that involves police misconduct in Hennepin County, frankly, the deck is stacked against you. From the Hennepin County Crime Lab to the medical examiner's office to the strong arm of the police union. And so I don't, you know, what they did in starting and burning down all these buildings after the George Floyd, I mean, I don't think it was good, but frankly, sometimes you wonder, can you blame them, right? Yes, just like I try to do everything professionally. I've never cursed at these people. And frankly, I think that's part of their tactic. They say outrageous things to you. So you just tell them to F off. And then you say, oh, you burnt your bridge of communication with me. And they go on to the next deceitful endeavor, you Mm -hmm. know. 
I think this history is important to include in this episode because it gives us some insight into what David's family has been dealing with the last four years. Scott had to wait an insane amount of time before he could see the Plymouth Police Department's official report on his son's death investigation case. Scott kept in contact with Hennepin County's managing assistant county attorney, who they wanted to answer some questions for them. They wanted these answers within the first few weeks of David's death, but Hennepin County just keeps stringing Scott along, not giving him these answers until finally, after two and a half years, on September 22nd, 2020, Hennepin County officially declines David's case for prosecution. And it's then that the official report is released, showing answers that only confirmed some of Scott's worst fears. Okay, guys, this was a big, big case, a case that was different from really any other ones that we've covered. I did decide to split this case into a two-parter. Now, don't worry, I am releasing both parts at the same exact time. So once you finish this part, part one that is ending right now, you can go on over and listen to part two.